Where all my children are the light Born in the sinning But steady striving to do right My people are warriors All we know is to fight Pray They see God in everything I write yeah. B. Post-election and transition period context Trump was elected president on November 8th, 2016. Beginning immediately after the election, individuals connected to the Russian government started contacting officials on the Trump campaign and transition team through multiple channels, sometimes through Russian Ambassador Kislyak and in other times through individuals who sought reliable contacts through U.S. persons not formally tied to the campaign or transition team. The most senior levels of the Russian government encouraged these efforts. The investigation did not establish that these efforts reflected or constituted coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia in its election interference activities. One, immediate post-election activity. As soon as news broke that Trump had been elected president, Russian government officials and prominent Russian businessmen began trying to make inroads into the new administration. They appeared not to have pre-existing contacts and struggled to connect with senior officials around the president-elect. As explained below, those efforts entailed both official contact through the Russian embassy in the United States and outreaches sanctioned at high levels of the Russian government through business rather than political contacts. A, outreach from Russian government. At approximately 3 a.m. on election night, Trump campaign press secretary Hope Hicks received a telephone call on her personal cell phone from a person who sounded foreign but was calling from a number with a D.C. area code. Although Hicks had a hard time understanding the person, she could make out the words Putin call. Hicks told the caller to send her an email. The following morning, on November 9, 2016, Sergei Kuznetsov, an official at the Russian embassy to the United States emailed Hicks from his Gmail address with the subject line message from Putin. Attached to the email was a message from Putin in both English and Russian, which which Kuznetsov asked Hicks to convey to the president-elect. In the message, Putin offered his congratulations to Trump for his electoral victory, stating he looked forward to working with Trump on leading Russian-American relations out of crisis. Hicks forwarded the email to Kushner asking, can you look into this? Don't want to get duped, but don't want to blow off Putin. Kushner stated in congressional testimony that he believed that it would be possible to verify the authenticity of the forwarded email through the Russian ambassador whom Kushner had previously met in April 2016. Unable to recall the Russian ambassador's name, Kushner emailed Dmitry Symes of CNI, whom he had consulted previously about Russia, see volume one, section 4A4, and asked, what is the name of the Russian ambassador? Kushner forwarded Symes' response, which identified Kislyak by name to Hicks. After checking with Kushner to see what he had learned, Hicks conveyed Putin's letter to transition officials. Five days later, on November 14th, 2016, Trump and Putin spoke by phone in the presence of transition team members, including incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. B, high-level encouragement of contacts through alternative channels. As Russian officials in the United States reached out to the president-elect and his team, a number of Russian individuals working in the private sector began their own efforts to make contact. Peter Avon, a Russian national who heads Alpha Bank, 
Russia's largest commercial bank, described to the office interactions with Putin during this time period that might account for the flurry of Russian activity. Avon told the office that he is one of approximately 50 Russian businessmen who regularly meet with Putin in the Kremlin. These 50 men are often referred to as oligarchs. Avon told the office that he met on a quarterly basis with Putin, including in the fourth quarter, Q4 of 2016, shortly after the U.S. presidential election. Avon said that he took these meetings seriously and understood that any suggestions or critiques that Putin made during these meetings were implicit directives and that there would be consequences for Avon if he did not follow through. As was typical, the 2016 Q4 meeting with Putin was preceded by a preparatory meeting with Putin's chief of staff, Anton Vano. According to Avon, at his Q4 2016 one-on-one meeting with Putin, Putin raised the prospect that the United States would impose additional sanctions on Russian interests, including sanctions against Avon and or Alpha Bank. Putin suggested that Avon needed to take steps to protect himself in Alpha Bank. Avon also testified that Putin spoke of the difficulty faced by the Russian government in getting in touch with the incoming Trump administration. According to Avon, Putin indicated that he did not know with whom formally to speak and generally did not know the people around the president-elect. Avon, this part is redacted for the grand jury, told Putin he would take steps to protect himself and the Alpha Bank shareholders from potential sanctions. And one of those steps would be to try to reach out to the incoming administration to establish a line of communication. Avon described Putin responding with skepticism about Avon's prospect for success. According to Avon, although Putin did not expressly direct him to reach out to the Trump transition team, Avon understood that Putin expected him to try to respond to the concerns he had raised. Avon's efforts are described in Volume 1, Section 4, B5. 2. Kirill Dmitriev's Transition Era Outreach to the Incoming Administration Avon's description of his interactions with Putin is consistent with the behavior of Kirill Dmitriev, a Russian national who heads Russia's sovereign wealth fund and is closely connected to Putin. Dmitriev undertook efforts to meet members of the incoming Trump administration in the months after the election. Dmitriev asked a close business associate who worked for the United Arab Emirates Royal Court, George Nader, to introduce him to Trump transition officials, and Nader eventually arranged a meeting in the Seychelles between Dmitriev and Eric Prince, a Trump campaign supporter and an associate of Steve Bannon. In addition, the UAE National Security Advisor introduced Dmitriev to a hedge fund manager and friend of Jared Kushner, Rick Gerson, in late November 2016. In December 2016 and January 2017, Dmitriev and Gerson worked on a proposal for reconciliation between the United States and Russia, which Dmitriev implied he cleared through Putin. Gerson provided that proposal to Kushner before the inauguration, and Kushner later gave copies to Bannon and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Background. Dmitriev is a Russian national who was appointed CEO of Russian's Russia's Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Russian Direct Investment Fund, when it was founded in 2011. 
Demetria reported directly to Putin and frequently referred to Putin as his boss. RDIF has co-invested in various projects with UAE sovereign wealth funds. Demetria regularly interacted with Nader, a senior advisor to UAE Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, Crown Prince Mohammed, in connection with RDIF's dealings with the UAE. Putin wanted Dmitriev to be in charge of both the financial and the political relationship between Russia and the Gulf states, in part because Dmitriev had been educated in the West and spoke English fluently. Nader considered Dmitriev to be Putin's interlocutor in the Gulf region and would relay Dmitriev's views directly to Crown Prince Mohammed. Nader developed contacts with both U.S. presidential campaigns during the 2016 election and kept Dmitriev abreast of his efforts to do so. According to Nader, Dmitriev said that his and the government of Russia's preference was for candidate Trump to win and asked Nader to assist him in meeting members of the Trump campaign. The next sentence is redacted for the ground jury. Nader did not introduce Dmitriev to anyone associated with the Trump campaign before the election. The next full paragraph is redacted for the grand jury. Eric Prince is a businessman who had relationships with various individuals associated with the Trump campaign, including Steve Bannon, Donald Trump Jr., and Roger Stone. Prince did not have a formal role in the campaign, although he offered to host a fundraiser for Trump and sent unsolicited policy papers on issues such as foreign policy, trade, and Russian election interference to Bannon. After the election, Prince frequently visited transition offices at Trump Tower, primarily to meet with Bannon, but on occasion to meet with Michael Flynn and others. Prince and Bannon would discuss inter alia foreign policy issues and Prince's recommendations regarding who should be appointed to fill key national security positions. Although Prince was not formally affiliated with the transition, Nader, uh, this is redacted for the ground jury, received assurances, redacted for the grand jury, that the incoming administration considered Prince a trusted associate. B, Kirill Dmitriev's post-election contacts with the incoming administration. Soon after midnight on election night, Dmitriev messaged, redacted for investigative technique, who was traveling to New York to attend the, 22nd, the 2016 World Class Championship. This portion is redacted for investigative technique. Dmitry Peskov, the Russian Federation's press secretary, who was also attending the World Chess Championship. The next several sentences are redacted for investigative technique. At approximately 2.40 a.m. on November 9, 2016, news reports stated that candidate Clinton had called President-elect Trump to concede at these next um, sentences, sentence and a half are redacted for investigative technique. Wrote to Dmitriev, Putin has won. Somebody wrote him that. I'm not sure who this redacted. Later that morning, Dmitriev contacted Nader, who was in New York, to request a meeting with the key people in the incoming administration as soon as possible in light of the great results. He asked Nader to convey to the incoming administration that what we want to start rebuilding the relationship that we want to start rebuilding the relationship and whatever is a comfortable pace for them. We understand all of the sensitivities and are not in a rush. 
Dmitriev and Nader had previously discussed Nader introducing him to the contacts Nader had made within the Trump campaign. Dmitriev also told Nader that he would ask Putin for permission to travel to the United States where he would be able to speak to media outlets about the positive impact of Trump's election and the need for reconciliation between the United States and Russia. Later that day, Dmitriev flew to New York, where Peskov was separately traveling to attend the chess tournament. Dmitriev invited Nader to the opening of the tournament and noted that if there was a chance to see anyone key from Trump camp, he would love to start building for the future. Dmitriev also asked Nader to invite Kushner to the event so that he, Dmitriev, could meet him. Nader did not pass along Dmitriev's invitation to anyone connected with the incoming administration, although one World Chess Federation official recalled hearing from an attendee that President-elect Trump had stopped by the tournament. The investigation did not establish that Trump or any campaign or transition team official attended the event. And the president's written answers denied that he had. Nader stated that Dmitriev continued to press him to set up a meeting with transition officials and was particularly focused on Kushner and Trump Jr. Dmitriev told Nader that Putin would be very grateful to Nader and that a meeting would make history. The next sentence is redacted for the grand jury. According to Nader, Dmitriev was very anxious to connect with the incoming administration and told Nader that he would try other routes to do so besides Nader himself. Nader did not ultimately introduce Dmitriev to anyone associated with the incoming administration during Dmitriev's post-election trip to New York. In early December 2016, Dmitriev again broached the topic of meeting incoming administration officials with Nader in January or February. Dmitriev sent Nader a list of public available quotes, publicly available quotes of Dmitriev speaking positively about Donald Trump in case they were helpful. Eric C., Eric Prince, and Kirill Dmitriev meet in the Seychelles. George Nader and Eric Prince arranged Seychelles meeting with Dmitriev. Nader traveled to New York in early January 2017 and had lunchtime and dinner meetings with Eric Prince on January 3rd, 2017. Nader and Prince discussed Dmitriev. Nader informed Prince that the Russians were looking to build a link with the incoming Trump administration. This is redacted for a grand jury. He told Prince that Dmitriev had been pushing Nader to introduce him to someone from the, the incoming administration. This is redacted for a grand jury. Nader suggested in light of Prince's relationship with transition team officials that Prince and Dmitriev meet to discuss issues of mutual concern. This portion is redacted for a grand jury. Prince told Nader that he needed to think further about it and to check with transition team officials. After his dinner with Prince, Nader sent Prince a link to a Wikipedia entry about Dmitriev and sent Dmitriev a message stating that he had just met with some key people within the family and inner circle, a reference to Prince, and that he had spoken at length and positively about Dmitriev. Nader told Dmitriev that the people he met had asked for Dmitriev's bio and Dmitriev replied that he would update and send it. Nader later received from Dmitriev two files concerning Dmitriev. One was a two-page biography, and the other was a list of Dmitriev's positive quotes about Donald Trump. The next morning, Nader forwarded the message and attachments Dmitriev had sent him to Prince. 
Nader wrote to Prince that these documents were the versions to be used with some additional details for them, with them referring to members of the incoming administration. Prince opened the attachments at Trump Tower within an hour of receiving them. Prince stated that while he was at Trump Tower that day, he spoke with Kellyanne Conway, Wilbur Ross, Steve Mnuchin, and others while waiting to see Bannon. Cell site location data for Prince's mobile phone indicates that Prince remained at Trump Tower for approximately three hours. Prince said that he could not recall whether during those three hours he met with Bannon and discussed Dimitri with him. This next sentence is redacted for a grand jury. Prince booked a ticket to the Seychelles on January 7, 7th, 2017. The following day, Nader wrote to Dimitriev that he had a pleasant surprise for him, namely that he had arranged for Dimitriev to meet a special guest from the new team, referring to Prince. Nader asked Dimitriev if he could come to the Seychelles for the meeting on January 12, 2017, and Dimitriev agreed. The following day, Dimitriev sought assurance from Nader that the Seychelles meeting would be worthwhile. This is redacted for a grand jury. Dimitriev was not enthusiastic about the idea of meeting with Prince and that Nader assured him that Prince wielded influence with the incoming administration. Nader wrote to Dimitriev, this guy, Prince, is designated by Steve Bannon to meet you. I know him and he is very, very well connected and trusted by the new team. His sister is now a minister of education. According to Nader, Prince had led him to believe that Bannon was aware of Prince's upcoming meeting with Dimitriev, and Prince acknowledged that it was fair for Nader to think that Prince would pass information on to the transition team. Bannon, however, told the office that Prince did not tell him in advance about his meeting with Dimitriev to the Seychelles meeting. Dimitriev arrived with his wife in the Seychelles on January 11th, 2017 and checked into the Four Seasons Resort where Crown Prince Mohammed and Nader were staying. Prince arrived that same day. Prince and Dimitriev met for the first time that afternoon in Nader's villa with Nader present. The initial meeting lasted approximately 30 to 45 minutes. This first sentence, the next paragraph is redacted for a grand jury. Prince described the eight years of the Obama administration in negative terms and stated that he was looking forward to a new era of cooperation and conflict resolution. According to Prince, he told Dimitriev that Bannon was effective, if not conventional, and that Prince provided policy papers to Bannon. The next paragraph is redacted for grand jury, except for this last sentence. The topic of Russian interference in the 2016 election did not come up. Next, next paragraph for a sentence redacted for a grand jury. Prince added that he would inform Bannon about his meeting with Dmitriev and that if there was interest in continuing the discussion, Bannon or someone else on the transition team would do so. Next sentence redacted for a ground jury. Afterwards, Prince returned to his room where he learned that a Russian aircraft carrier had sailed to Libya, which led him to call Nader and ask him to set up another meeting with Dimitriev. According to Nader, Prince called and said he had checked with his associates back home and needed to convey to Dimitriev that Libya was off the table. Nader wrote to Dimitriev that Prince had received an urgent message that he needs to convey to you immediately and arranged for himself, Dmitriev, and Prince to meet at a restaurant on the Four Seasons property. 
At the second meeting, Prince told Demetria that the United States could not accept any Russian involvement in Libya because it would make the situation there much worse. This part of there's a an accompanying footnote, part of which is redacted for the grand jury, but it ends with Prince, however, denied that and recalled that he was making these remarks to Dmitriev, not in an official capacity for the transition, but based on his experience as a formal naval officer. The next sentence in the paragraph is redacted for the grand jury. After the brief second meeting concluded, Nader and Dmitriev discussed what had transpired. Dmitriev told Nader that he was disappointed in his meetings with Prince for two reasons. First, he believed that Russians needed to be communicating with someone who had more authority within the incoming administration than Prince had. Second, he had hoped to have a discussion of greater substance, such as outlining a strategic roadmap for both countries to follow. Dmitriev told Nader that this is redacted for a grand jury. Prince's comments, this is redacted for a grand jury. We're insulting. This is redacted for a grand jury. Hours after the second meeting, Prince sent two text messages to Bannon from the Seychelles. As described further below, investigators were unable to obtain the content of these or other messages between Prince and Bannon, and the investigation also did not identify evidence of any further communication between Prince and Dmitriev after their meetings in the Seychelles. Three, Eric Prince's meeting with Steve Bannon after the Seychelles trip. After the Seychelles meetings, Prince told Nader that he would inform Bannon about his discussion with Dmitriev and would convey that someone within the Russian power structure was interested in seeking better relations with the incoming administration. On January 12, 2017, Prince contacted Bannon. Prince contacted Bannon's personal assistant to set up a meeting for the following week. Several days later, Prince messaged her again asking about Bannon's schedule. Prince said that he met Bannon at Bannon's home after returning to the United States in mid-January and briefed him about several topics, including his meeting with Dmitriev. Prince told the office that he explained to Bannon that Dmitriev was the head of a Russian sovereign wealth fund and was interested in improving relations between the United States and Russia. Prince had on his cell phone a screenshot of Dmitriev's Wikipedia page dated January 16, 2017, and Prince told the office that he likely showed that image to Bannon. Prince also believed he provided Bannon with Dmitriev's contact information. According to Prince, Bannon instructed Prince not to follow up with Dmitriev, and Prince had the impression that the issue was not a priority for Bannon. Prince related that Bannon did not appear angry, just relatively uninterested. Bannon, by contrast, told the office that he never discussed with Prince anything regarding Dmitriev, RDF, or any meetings with Russian individuals or people associated with Putin. Bannon also stated that had Prince mentioned such a meeting, Bannon would have remembered it, and Bannon would have objected to such a meeting having taken place. The conflicting accounts provided by Bannon and Prince could not be independently clarified by reviewing their communications because neither one was able to produce any of the messages they exchanged in the time period surrounding the Seychelles meeting. Prince's phone contained no text messages prior to March 2017, though provider records indicate that he and Bannon exchanged dozens of messages. Prince denied deleting any messages, but claimed 
He did not know why there were no messages on his device before March 2017. Bannon's devices similarly contained no messages in the relevant time period. And Bannon also stated he did not know why messages did not appear on his device. Bannon told the office that during both the months before and after the Seychelles meeting, he regularly used his personal BlackBerry and personal email for work-related communications, including those with Prince, and he took no steps to preserve these work communications. D, Kirill Dmitriev's post-election contact with Rick Gerson regarding U.S.-Russia relations. Dmitriev's contacts during the transition period were not limited to those facilitated by Nader. In approximately late November 2016, the UAE National Security Advisor introduced Dmitriev to Rick Gerson, a friend of Jared Kushner who runs a hedge fund in New York. Gerson stated he had no formal role in the transition and had no involvement in the Trump campaign other than occasional casual discussions about the campaign with Kushner. After the election, Gerson assisted the transition by arranging meetings for transition officials with former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair and a UAE delegation led by Crown Prince Mohammed. When Dmitriev and Gerson met, they principally discussed potential joint ventures between Gerson's hedge fund and RDIF. Dmitriev was interested in improved economic cooperation between the United States and Russia and asked Gerson who he should meet with in the incoming administration who would be helpful towards this goal. Gerson replied that he would try to figure out the best way to arrange appropriate introductions, but noted that confidentiality would be required because of the sensitivity of holding such meetings before the new administration took power and before cabinet nominees had been confirmed by the Senate. Gerson said he would ask Kushner and Michael Flynn who the key person or people were on the topics of reconciliation with Russia, joint security concerns, and economic matters. Dmitriev told Gerson that he had been tasked by Putin to develop and execute a reconciliation plan between the United States and Russia. He noted in a text message to Gerson that if Russia was approached with respect and willingness to understand our position, we can have major breakthroughs quickly. Gerson and Dmitriev exchanged ideas in December 2016 about what such a reconciliation plan would include. Gerson told the office that the transition team had not asked him to engage in these discussions with Dmitriev and that he did so on his own initiative and as a private citizen. On January 16, 2017, Dmitriev consolidated the ideas for U.S. reconciliation that he and Gerson had been discussing into a two-page document that listed five main points. One, jointly fighting terrorism. Two, jointly engaging in anti-weapons of mass destruction efforts. Three, developing win-win economic and investment initiatives. Four, maintaining an honest, open, and continual dialogue regarding issues of disagreement. And five, ensuring proper communication and trust by key people from each country. On January 18th, 2017, Gerson gave a copy of the document to Kushner. Kushner had not heard of Dmitriev at that time. Gerson explained that Dmitriev was the head of RDIF, and Gerson may have alluded to Dmitriev's being well connected. Kushner placed the document in a file and said he would get it to the right people. Kushner ultimately gave one copy of the document to Bannon and another to Rex Tillerson. According to Kushner, neither of them followed up with Kushner about it. 
On January 19th, 2017, Dimitriev sent Nader a copy of the two-page document telling him that this was a view from our side that I discussed in my meeting on the islands and with you and with our friends. Please share with them. We believe this is a good foundation to start from. Gerson informed Dimitriev that he had given the documents to Kushner soon after delivering it. On January 26, 2017, Dimitriev wrote to Gerson that his boss, an apparent reference to Putin, was asking if there had been any feedback on the proposal. Dimitriev said, we do not want to rush things and move at a comfortable speed. At the same time, my boss asked me to try to have the key U.S. meetings in the next two weeks if possible. He informed Gerson that Putin and President Trump would speak by phone that Saturday and noted that information was very confidential. The same day, Dimitriev wrote to an aider that he had seen his boss again yesterday who had emphasized that this is a great priority for us and that we need to build this communication channel to avoid bureaucracy. On January 28th, Dimitriev texted Nader that he wanted to see if I can confirm to my boss that your friends may use some of the ideas from the two-pager I sent you in the telephone call that will happen at 12 Eastern. On apparent reference, I'm sorry, an apparent reference to the call scheduled between President Trump and Putin, Nader replied, definitely paper was so submitted to team by Rick and me. They took it seriously. After the call between President Trump and Putin occurred, Dimitriev wrote to Nader that the call went very well. My boss wants me to continue making some public statements that us, Russia cooperation is good and important. That's what it says. It's not proper, but that's what it says. Gerson also wrote to Dimitriev to say that the call had gone well and Dimitriev replied that the document they had drafted together played an important role. Gerson and Dmitriev appeared to stop communicating with one another in approximately March 2017 when the investment deal they had been working on together showed no signs of progressing. Three, Ambassador Kisiak's meeting with Jared Kushner and <clears throat> sorry, Ambassador Kisiak's meeting with Jared Kushner and Michael Flynn in Trump Tower following the election. On November 16th, 2016, Catherine Vargas, an executive assistant to Kushner, received a request for a meeting with Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak. That same day, Vargas sent Kushner an email with the subject, missed call, Russian ambassador to the U.S., Sergei Ivanovich Kislyak. The text of the email read, are you setting up a time to meet with you on 12-1? Let me know how to proceed. Kushner responded in relevant part. I think I do this one. Confirm with Dimitri Symes of CNI that this is the right guy. After reaching out to a colleague of Symes at CNI, Vargas reported back to Kushner that Kislyak was the best go-to guy for routine matters in the U.S. While Yuri Ushakov, Ushakov, a Russian foreign policy advisor, was the contact for more direct, substantial matters. Bob Forsman, the UBS investment bank executive who had previously tried to transmit to candidate Trump an invitation to speak at an economic forum in Russia, see volume one, section 4A, 1D2, may have provided similar information to the transition team. According to Foreman, 
at the end of an earlier December 2016 meeting with incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and his designated deputy, KT McFarland in New York, Flynn asked Forsman for his thoughts on Kislyak. Forsman had not met Kislyak, but told Flynn that while Kislyak was an important person, Kislyak did not have a direct line to Putin. Forsman subsequently traveled to Moscow, inquired of a source he believed to be close to Putin, and heard back from that source that Ushakov would be the official channel for the incoming U.S. National Security Advisor. Forsman acknowledged that Flynn had not asked him to undertake that inquiry in Russia, but told that office that he nonetheless felt obligated to report that information back to Flynn and that he worked, he worked to get a face-to-face meeting with Flynn in January 2017 so that he could do so. Email correspondence suggests that the meeting ultimately went forward, but Flynn has no recollection of it or of the earlier December meeting. The investigation did not Id- identify evidence of Flynn or Kushner meeting with Ushkov after being given his name. In the meantime, although he had already formed the impression that Kislyak was not necessarily the right point of contact, Kushner went forward with the meeting that Kislyak had requested on November 16th. It took place at Trump Tower on November 30th, 2016. At Kushner's invitation, Flynn also attended. Bannon was invited but did not attend. During the meeting, which lasted approximately 30 minutes, Kushner expressed a desire on the part of the incoming administration to start afresh with U.S.-Russian relations. Kushner also asked Kislyak to identify the best person, whether Kislyak or someone else, with whom to direct future discussions, someone who had contact with Putin and the ability to speak for him. The three men also discussed U.S. policy towards Syria, and Kislyak floated the idea of having Russian generals brief the transition team on the topic using a secure communications line. After Flynn explained that there was no secure line in the transition team offices, Kushner asked Kislyak if they could communicate using secure facilities at the Russian embassy. Kislyak quickly rejected that idea. Four, Jared Kushner's meeting with Sergei Gorkov. On December 6, 2016, the Russian embassy reached out to Kushner's assistant to set up a second meeting between Kislyak and Kushner. Kushner declined several proposed meeting dates, but Kushner's assistant indicated that Kislyak was very insistent about securing a second meeting. Kushner told the office that he did not want to take another meeting because he'd already decided Kislyak was not the right channel for him to communicate with Russia. So he arranged to have one of his assistants Avi Berkowitz meet with Kislyak in his stead. Although embassy official Sergei Kuznetsov wrote to Berkowitz that Kislyak thought it important to continue the conversation with Mr. Kushner in person, Kislyak nonetheless agreed to meet instead with Berkowitz once it became apparent that Kushner was unlikely to take a meeting. Berkowitz met with Kislyak on December 12, 2016 at Trump Tower. The meeting lasted only a few minutes, during which Kislyak indicated that he wanted Kushner to meet someone who had a direct line to Putin. Sergei Gorkov, the head of the Russian government-owned bank, VEB, because I cannot pronounce this name. Kushner agreed to meet with Gorkov. 
The one-on-one meeting took place the next day, December 13, 2016, at the Colony Capitol building in Manhattan, where Kushner had previously scheduled meetings. VEB was and is the subject of Department of Treasury economic sanctions imposed in response to Russia's annexation of Crimea. Kushner did not, however, recall any discussion during his meeting with Gorkov about the sanctions against VEB or sanctions more generally. Kushner stated in an interview that he did not engage in any preparation for the meeting and that no one on the transition team even did a Google search for Gorkov's name. At the start of the meeting, Gorkov presented Kushner with two gifts, a painting and a bag of soil from the town in Belarus where Kushner's family originated. The accounts from Kushner and Gorkov differ as to whether the meeting was diplomatic or business in nature. Kushner told the office, that the meeting was diplomatic, with Gorkov expressing disappointment with U.S.-Russia relations under President Obama and hopes for improved relations with the incoming administration. According to Kushner, although Gorkov told Kushner a little bit about his bank and made some statements about the Russian economy, the two did not discuss Kushner's companies or private business dealings of any kind. At the time of the meeting, Kushner companies had a debt obligation coming due on the building it owned at 666 Fifth Avenue. And there have been public reporting both about efforts to secure lending on the property and possible conflicts of interest for Kushner arising out of his company's borrowing from foreign lenders. In contrast, in a 2017 public statement, VEB suggested Gorkov met with Kushner in Kushner's capacity as CEO of Kushner Companies for the purpose of discussing business rather than as part of a diplomatic effort. In particular, VEB characterized Gorkov's meeting with Kushner as part of a series of roadshow meetings with representatives of major U.S. banks and business circles, which included negotiations and discussion of the most promising business lines and sectors. Forsman, the investment bank executive mentioned in Volume 1, Sections 4A1 and 4B3, told the office that he met with Gorkov and VEB Deputy Chairman Nikolay Teskomsky in Moscow just before Gorkov left for New York to meet Kushner. According to Forsman, Gorkov and Teskomsky told him that they were traveling to New York to discuss post-election issues with U.S. financial institutions, that their trip was sanctioned by Putin, and that they would be reporting back to Putin upon their return. This is really crazy. Really insane. The investigation did not resolve the apparent conflict in the accounts of Kushner and Gorkov or determine whether the meeting was diplomatic in nature, as Kushner stated, focused on business as VEB's public statement indicated, or whether it involved some combination of those matters or other matters. Regardless, the investigation did not identify evidence that Kushner and Gorkov engaged in any substantive follow-up after the meeting. Rather, A few days after the meeting, Gorkov's assistant texted Kushner's assistant, Hi, please inform your side that the information about the meeting had a very positive response. Over the following weeks, the two assistants exchanged a handful of additional cordial texts. On February 8, 2017, Gorkov's assistant texted Kushner's assistant, Berkowitz, to try to set up another meeting and followed up by text at least twice in the days that followed. According to Berkowitz, he did not respond to the meeting request in light of the press coverage regarding the Russia investigation. 
and did not tell Kushner about the meeting request. Five, Peter Avon's outreach efforts to the transition team. In December 2016, weeks after the one-on-one meeting with Putin, described in Volume 1, Section 4B1B, Peter Avon attended what he described as a separate all-hands oligarch meeting between Putin and Russia's most prominent businessmen. As in Avon's one-on-one meeting, a main topic of discussion at the oligarch meeting in December 2016 was the prospect of forthcoming U.S. economic sanctions. After the December 2016 all-hands meeting, Avon tried to establish a a connection to the Trump team. Avon instructed Richard Burt to make contact with the incoming Trump administration. Burt was on the board of directors for Letter One, L1, another company headed by Avon and had done work for Alpha Bank. Burt had previously served as U.S. ambassador to Germany, an assistant secretary of state for European and Canadian affairs, and one of his primary roles with Alpha Bank and L1 was to facilitate introductions to business contacts in the United States and other Western countries. While at an, at an L1 board meeting held in Luxembourg in late December 2016, Avon pulled Bert aside and told him that he had spoken to someone high in the Russian government who expressed interest in establishing a communications channel between the Kremlin and the Trump administration team. Sorry between the Kremlin and the Trump transition team. Avon asked for Burt's help in contacting members of the transition team. Although Burt had been responsible for helping Avon build connections in the past, Burt viewed Avon's request as unusual and outside the normal realm of his dealings with Avon. Burt, who is a member of the board of CNI, discussed at volume one, section 4A4, decided to approach CNI president Dimitri Symes for help facilitating Avon's request, recalling that Symes had some relationship with Kushner. At the time, Symes was lobbying the Trump transition team on Burt's behalf to appoint Burt U.S. ambassador to Russia. Burt contacted Symes by telephone and asked if he could arrange a meeting with Kushner to discuss setting up a high-level communications channel between Putin and the incoming administration. Symes told the office that he declined and stated to Burt that setting up such a channel was not a good idea in light of the media, in light of the media attention surrounding Russian influence on the U.S. presidential election. According to Symes, he understood that Burt was seeking a secret channel and Symes did not want CNI to be seen as an intermediary between the Russian government and the incoming administration. Based on what Symes had read in the media, he stated that he already had concerns that Trump's business connections could be exploited by Russia, and Symes said that he did not want CNI to have any involvement or apparent involvement in facilitating any connection. In an email dated December 22, 2016, Burt recounted for Avon his conversation with Symes. Through a trusted third party, I have reached out to the very influential person I mentioned in Luxembourg concerning Project A. There is an interest and an understanding for the need to establish such a channel. But the individual emphasized that at this moment, with so much intense interest in the Congress and the media over the question of cyber hacking and who ordered that, Project A was too explosive to discuss. The individual agreed to discuss it again after the new year. I trust the individual's instinct on this. If this is unclear or you would like to discuss, don't hesitate to call. 
According to Bert, the very influential person referenced in his email was Symes, and the reference to a trusted third party was a fabrication as no such third party existed. Project A was a term that Bert created for Avon's effort to help establish a communication channel between Russia and the Trump team, which he used in light of the sensitivity surrounding what Avon was requesting, especially in light of the recent attention to Russia's influence in the U.S. presidential election. According to Bert, his report that there was interest in a communications channel reflected Symes' views, not necessarily those of the transition team, and in any event, Bert acknowledged that he added some hype to that sentence to make it sound like there was more interest from the transition team than may have actually existed. Avon replied to Bert's email on the same day saying, thank you, all clear. According to Avon, this statement indicated that he did not want the outreach to continue. Bert spoke to Avon sometime thereafter about his attempt to make contact with the Trump team, explaining to Avon that the current environment made it impossible This next portion is redacted for a grand jury. Bert did not recall discussing Avon's request with Symes again, nor did he recall speaking to anyone else about the request. In the first quarter of 2017, Avon met again with Putin and other Russian officials. At that meeting, Putin asked about Avon's attempt to build relations with the Trump administration, and Avon recounted his lack of success. The next portion is redacted for a grand jury. Putin continued to inquire about Avon's efforts to connect to the Trump administration in several subsequent quarterly meetings. Avon also told Putin's chief of staff that he had been subpoenaed by the FBI. As part of that conversation, he reported that he had been asked by the FBI about whether he had worked to create a back channel between the Russian government and the Trump administration. According to Avon, The official showed no emotion in response to this report and did not appear to care. Six, Carter Page contact with Deputy Prime Minister Arkady Dvorkovich. In December 2016, more than two months after he was removed from the Trump campaign, former campaign foreign policy advisor Carter Page again visited Moscow in an attempt to pursue business opportunities. The next sentence is redacted for a grand jury. jury. According to Konstantin Kilimnik, Paul Manafort's associate, Page also gave some individuals in Russia the impression that he had maintained his connections to President-elect Trump. In a December 28, 2016 email intended for Manafort, Kilimnik wrote, Carter Page is in Moscow today, sending messages he is authorized to talk to Russia on behalf of DT on a range of issues of mutual interest, including Ukraine. On December 9th, 2016, Page went to dinner with NES employees Shlomo Weber and Andrei Krikovich. Weber had contacted Dvorkovich to let him know that Page was in town and to invite him to stop by the dinner if he wished to do so. And Dvorkovich came to the restaurant for a few minutes to meet with Page. Dvorkovich congratulated Page on Trump's election and expressed interest in starting a dialogue between the United States and Russia. Dvorkovich asked Page if he could facilitate connecting Dvorkovich with individuals involved in the transition to begin a discussion of future cooperation. The rest of this paragraph is redacted for grand jury. Next paragraph starts with a redaction for the grand jury. 
Dvorkovich separately discussed working together in the future by forming an academic partnership. The rest of this paragraph is redacted for a grand jury. Seven, contacts with and through Michael T. Flynn. Incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn was the transition team's primary conduit for communications with the Russian ambassador and dealt with Russia on two sensitive matters during the transition period, a United Nations Security Council vote and the Russian government's reaction to the United States imposition of sanctions for Russian interference in the 2016 election. Despite Kushner's conclusion that Kislyak did not wield influence inside the Russian government, the transition team turned to Flynn's relationship with Kislyak on both issues. As to the sanctions, Flynn spoke by phone to KT McFarlane, his incoming deputy, to prepare for his call to Kislyak. McFarlane was with the president-elect and other senior members of the transition team at Mar-a-Lago at the time. Although transition officials at Mar-a-Lago had some concern about possible Russian sanctions, oh, sorry. Although transition officials at Mar-a-Lago had some concern about possible Russian reactions to the sanctions, the investigation did not identify evidence that the president-elect asked Flynn to make any request to Kislyak. Flynn asked Kislyak not to escalate the situation in response to U.S. sanctions imposed on December 29, 2016. And Kislyak later reported to Flynn that Russia acceded to that request. A. United Nations vote on Israeli settlements. On December 21, 2016, Egypt submitted a resolution to the United Nations Security Council calling on Israel to cease settlement activities in Palestinian territory. The Security Council, which included Russia, the Security Council, which includes Russia, was scheduled to vote on the resolution the following day. There was speculation in the media that the Obama administration would not oppose the resolution. According to Flynn, the transition team regarded the vote as a significant issue and wanted to support Israel by opposing the resolution. On December 22, 2016, multiple members of the transition team, as well as President-elect Trump, communicated with foreign government officials to determine their views on the resolution and to rally support to delay the vote or defeat the resolution. Kushner led the effort for the transition team. Flynn was responsible for the Russian government. Minutes after an early morning phone call with Kushner on December 22nd, Flynn called Kislyak. According to Flynn, he informed Kislyak about the vote and the transition team's opposition to the resolution and requested that Russia vote against or delay the resolution. Later that day, President-elect Trump spoke with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi about the vote. Ultimately, Egypt postponed the vote. On December 23rd, 2016, Malaysia, New Zealand, Senegal, and Venezuela resubmitted the resolution. Throughout the day, members of the transition team continued to talk with foreign leaders about the resolution, with Flynn continuing to lead the outreach with the Russian government through Kislyak. When Flynn again spoke with Kislyak, Kislyak informed Flynn that if the resolution came to a vote, Russia would not vote against it. The resolution later passed 14 to 0 with the United States abstaining. B, U.S. sanctions against Russia. 
Flynn was also the transition team member who spoke with the Russian government when the Obama administration imposed sanctions and other measures against Russia in response to Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election. On December 28, 2016, then President Obama signed Executive Order 13757, which took effect at 12.01 a.m. the following day and imposed sanctions on nine Russian individuals and entities. On December 29, 2016, the Obama administration also expelled 35 Russian government officials and closed two Russian government-owned compounds in the United States. During the rollout of the sanctions, President-elect Trump and multiple transition team senior officials, including McFarlane, Steve Bannon, Reince Priebus, were staying at the Mar-a-Lago Club in Palm Beach, Florida. Flynn was on vacation in the Dominican Republic, but was in daily contact with McFarlane. The transition team and President-elect Trump were concerned that these sanctions would harm the United States relationship with Russia. Although the details and timing of sanctions were unknown on December 28, 2016, the media began reporting that retaliatory measures from the Obama administration against Russia were forthcoming. When asked about imposing sanctions on Russia for its alleged interference in the 2016 presidential election, President-elect Trump told the media, I think we ought to get on with our lives. Let that sink in. Russia initiated the outreach to the transition team. On the evening of December 28, 2016, Kislyak texted Flynn, can you kindly call me back at your convenience? Flynn did not respond to the text message that evening. Someone from the Russian embassy also called Flynn the next morning at 10.38 a.m., but they did not talk. The sanctions were announced publicly on December 29, 2016, At 1.53 p.m. that day, McFarland began exchanging emails with multiple transition team members and advisors about the impact the sanctions would have on the incoming administration. At 2.07 p.m., a transition team member texted Flynn a link to a New York Times article about the sanctions. At 2.29 p.m., McFarland called Flynn, but they did not talk. Shortly thereafter, McFarland and Bannon discussed the sanctions. According to McFarland, Bannon remarked that the sanctions would hurt their ability to have good relations with Russia and that Russian escalation would make things more difficult. McFarland believes she told Bannon that Flynn was scheduled to talk to Kislyak later that night. McFarland also believes she may have discussed the sanctions with Priebus and likewise told him that Flynn was scheduled to talk to Kislyak that night. At 3.14 p.m., Flynn texted a transition team member who was assisting McFarland. Time for a call. The transition team member responded that McFarland was on the phone with Tom Bossert, a transition team senior official, to which Flynn responded, tit for tat with Russia, not good. Russian AMBO reaching out to me today. Flynn recalled that he chose not to communicate with Kislyak about the sanctions until he had heard from the team in Mar-a-Lago. He first spoke with Michael Ledeen, a transition team member who advised on foreign policy and national security matters for 20 minutes. Flynn then spoke with McFarland for almost 20 minutes to discuss what, if anything, to communicate to Kislyak about the sanctions. On that call, 
McFarland and Flynn discussed the sanctions, including their potential impact on the incoming Trump administration's foreign policy goals. McFarland and Flynn also discussed that transition team members in Mar-a-Lago did not want Russia to escalate the situation. They both understood that Flynn would relay a message to Kislyak in hopes of making sure the situation would not get out of hand. Immediately after speaking with McFarland, Flynn called and spoke with Kislyak. Flynn discussed multiple topics with Kislyak, including the sanctions, scheduling a video teleconference between President-elect Trump and Putin, an upcoming terrorism conference, and Russia's views about the Middle East. With respect to the sanctions, Flynn requested that Russia not escalate the situation, not get into a tit-for-tat, and only respond to the sanctions in a reciprocal manner. Manner. Multiple transition team members were aware that Flynn was speaking with Kislyak that day. In addition to her conversations with Bannon and Reince Priebus at 4.43 p.m., McFarland sent an email to transition team members about the sanctions informing the group that General Flynn is talking to Russian ambassador this evening. Less than an hour later, McFarland briefed President-elect Trump, Bannon, Priebus, Sean Spicer, and other transition team members were present. During the briefing, President-elect Trump asked McFarland if the Russians did it, meaning the intrusions intended to influence the presidential election. McFarland said yes, and President-elect Trump expressed doubt that it was the Russians. McFarland also discussed potential Russian responses to the sanctions and said Russia's response would be an indicator of what the Russians wanted going forward. President-elect Trump opined that the sanctions provided him with leverage to use with the Russians. McFarland recalled that at the end of the meeting, someone may have mentioned to President-elect Trump that Flynn was speaking to the Russian ambassador that evening. After the briefing, Flynn and McFarland spoke over the phone. Flynn reported on the substance of his call with Kislyak, including their discussions of the sanctions. According to McFarland, Flynn mentioned that the Russian response to the sanctions was not going to be escalatory because they wanted a good relationship with the incoming administration. McFarland also gave Flynn a summary of her recent briefing with President-elect Trump. The next day, December 30th, 2016, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov remarked that Russia would respond in kind to the sanctions. Putin superseded that comment two hours later, releasing a statement that Russia would not take retaliatory measures in response to the sanctions at that time. Hours later, President Trump tweeted, great move on delay by V. Putin. Shortly thereafter, Flynn sent a text message to McFarland summarizing his call with Kislyak from the day before, which she emailed to Kushner, Bannon, Priebus, and other transition team members. The text message and email did not include sanctions as one of the topics discussed with Kislyak. Flynn told the office that he did not doc- that he did not document his discussion of sanctions because it could be perceived as getting in the way of the Obama administration's foreign policy. On December 31st, 2016, Kislyak called Flynn and told him the request has been received at the highest levels and that Russia had chosen not to retaliate to the sanctions in response to the request. Two hours later, Flynn spoke with McFarland and relayed his conversation with Kislyak. According to McFarland, Flynn remarked that the Russians wanted a better relationship and that the relationship was back on track. 
Flynn also told McFarland that he believed his phone call had made a difference. McFarland recalled congratulating Flynn in response. Flynn spoke with other transition team members that day, but does not recall whether they discussed the sanctions. Flynn recalled discussing the sanctions with Bannon the next day and that Bannon appeared to know about Flynn's conversation with Kislyak. Bannon, for his part, recalled meeting with Flynn that day, but said he did not remember discussing discussing sanctions with him. Additional information about Flynn's sanction-related discussions with Kislyak and the handling of those discussions by the transition team and the Trump administration is provided in volume two of this report. In sum, the investigation established multiple links between Trump campaign officials and individuals tied to the Russian government. Those links include included Russian offers of assistance to the campaign. In some instances, the campaign was receptive to the offer, while in other instances, the campaign officials shied away. Ultimately, the investigation did not establish that the campaign coordinated or conspired with the Russian government in its election interference activities. Well, that's confusing. Section five, prosecution and declination decisions. The appointment order authorized the special counsel's office to prosecute federal crimes arising from its investigation of the matters assigned to it. In deciding whether to exercise this prosecutorial authority, the office has been guided by the principles of federal prosecution set forth in the justice, formerly U.S. Attorney's Manual. In particular, the office has evaluated whether conduct of the individuals considered for prosecution constituted a federal offense and whether admissible evidence would probably be sufficient to obtain and sustain a conviction for such an offense. Justice Manual Section 9-27.220, where the answer to those questions was yes, the office further considered whether the prosecution would serve a substantial federal interest, the individuals were subject to effective prosecution in another jurisdiction, and there existed an adequate non-criminal alternative to prosecution. As explained below, those considerations led the office to seek charges against two sets of Russian nationals for their roles in perpetrating the active measures, social media campaign, and computer intrusion operations. The next sentence is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. The office similarly determined that the contacts between campaign officials and Russia-linked individuals either did not involve the commission of a federal crime or in the case of campaign finance offenses that our evidence was not sufficient to obtain and sustain a criminal conviction. At the same time, the office concluded that the principles of federal prosecution supported charging certain individuals connected to the campaign with making false statements or otherwise obstructing this investigation or parallel congressional investigations. A, Russian Active Measures Social Media Campaign. On February 16, 2018, a federal grand jury in the District of Columbia returned an indictment charging 13 Russian nationals and three Russian entities, including the Internet Research Agency, IRA, and Concord Management and Consulting, LLC, Concord, with violating U.S. criminal laws in order to interfere with U.S. elections and political processes, 
The indictment charges all of the defendants with conspiracy to defraud the United States, count one. Three defendants with conspiracy to commit wire fraud and bank fraud, count two. And five defendants with aggravated identity theft, counts three through eight. Internet Research Agency indictment. Concord, which is one of the entities charged in the count one conspiracy, entered an appearance through U.S. counsel and moved to dismiss the charge on multiple grounds. In orders and memorandum, opinions issued on August 13th and November 15th, 2018, the district court denied Concord's motion to dismiss. Several um, case citations are here. As of this writing, the prosecution of Concord remains ongoing before the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. The other defendants remain at large. Although members of the IRA had contact with individuals affiliated with the Trump campaign, the indictment does not charge any Trump campaign official or any other U.S. person with participating in the conspiracy. That is because the the investigation did not identify evidence that any U.S. person who coordinated or communicated with the IRA knew that he or she was speaking with Russian nationals engaged in the criminal conspiracy. The office, therefore, determined that such persons did not have the knowledge or criminal purpose required to charge them in the conspiracy to defraud the United States, count one, or in the separate count alleging a wire and bank fraud conspiracy involving the IRA and two individual Russian nationals, count two. The office did, however, charge one U.S. national for his role in supplying false or stolen bank account numbers that allowed the IRA conspirators to access U.S. online payment systems by circumventing those systems' security features. On February 12, 2018, Richard Pinedo pleaded guilty pursuant to a single count information to identity fraud in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1028A7 and B1B. Plea agreement is cited here. The investigation did not establish that Pinedo was aware of the identity of the IRA members who purchased bank account numbers from him. Pinedo's sale of account numbers enabled the IRA members to anonymously access a financial network through which they transacted with U.S. persons and companies. Case citation. On October 10th, 2018, Pinedo was sentenced to six months of imprisonment to be followed by six months of home confinement and was ordered to complete 100 hours of community service. B, Russian hacking and dumping operations. Section 1030, computer intrusion conspiracy. A, background. On July 13, 2018, a federal grand jury in the District of Columbia returned an indictment charging Russian military intelligence officers from the GRU with conspiring to hack into various U.S. computers, used by the Clinton campaign, DNC, DCCC, and other U.S. persons in violation of 18 U.S.C. sections 1030 and 371, count one, committing identity theft and conspiring to commit money laundering and furtherance of that hacking conspiracy in violation of 18 U.S.C. sections 1028A and 1956H, counts two through ten and a separate conspiracy to hack into the computers of U.S. persons and entities responsible for the administration of the 2016 U.S. election in violation of 18 U.S.C. sections 1030 and 371, count 11. 
the Tyke Show indictment, as if this writing all 12 defendants remain at large. And the Tyke Show indictment alleges that the defendants conspired with one another and with others to hack into the computers of U.S. persons and entities involved in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, steal documents from those computers and stage releases of those stolen documents to interfere in the election. The indictment also describes how in staging the releases, the defendants used the Guccifer 2.0 persona to disseminate documents through WikiLeaks. On July 22, 2016, WikiLeaks released over 20,000 emails and other documents that the hacking conspirators had stolen from the DNC. In addition, on October 7, 2016, WikiLeaks began releasing emails that some conspirators had stolen from Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta after a successful spear phishing operation. The next full paragraph is redacted for harm to ongoing matter and for the grand jury. B, charging decision as to redacted for harm to ongoing matter. And the rest of this on 176 is redacted. I will read the um, footnote 1278 because the whole section is redacted. So it's the only information we have on this. The office also considered but ruled out charges on the theory that the post hacking, sharing and dissemination of emails could constitute trafficking in or receipt of stolen property under the National Stolen Property Act, 18 U.S.C. Sections 2314 and 2315. The statutes comprising the NSPA covered goods, wares or merchandise and lower courts have largely understood that phrase to be limited to tangible items since the Supreme Court's decision in Dowling versus United States. Uh, there's other case law citations. One of those post-dowling decisions, United States versus Brown, specifically held that the NSPA does not reach a computer program in source code form, even though that code was stored in tangible items. For example, a hard disk in an, a three-ring notebook. Congress, in turn, cited the Brown opinion in explaining the need for amendments to uh, 18 U.S.C. Sections 1030A2 that would ensure that the theft of intangible information by the unauthorized use of a computer is prohibited in the same way theft of physical items is protected. That sequence of events would make it difficult to argue that hacked emails in electronic form, which are the relevant sort of items here, constitute goods, wares, or merchandise within the meaning of the NSPA. The entire page uh, 177 is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. The entire page on 178 is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. First paragraph on page 179 is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. Uh, number two, potential section 1030 violation by uh, redacted for personal privacy. Uh, this next paragraph is redacted for personal privacy. And the next uh, beginning of the second paragraph is redacted for personal privacy. See United States versus Willis explaining that the 1986 amendments to Section 1030 reflect Congress's desire to reach intentional acts of unauthorized access rather than mistaken, inadvertent or careless ones. In addition, the computer, this is redacted for personal privacy, likely qualifies as protected one under the statute which reaches effectively all computers with internet access. The rest of the paragraph is redacted for personal privacy. 
Applying the principles of federal prosecution, however, the office determined that prosecution of this potential violation is not warranted. Those principles instruct prosecutors to consider, among other things, the nature and seriousness of the offense, the person's culpability in connection with the offense, and the probable sentence to be imposed if the prosecution is successful. Justice Manual Section 9-27.230. This next, uh, the rest of the paragraph is redacted for personal privacy, as well as the first sentence on page 180. C, Russian government outreach and contacts. As explained in section four above, the office's investigation uncovered evidence of numerous links, i.e. contacts between Trump campaign officials and individuals having or claiming to have ties to the Russian government. The office evaluated the contacts under several sets of federal laws, including conspiracy laws and statutes governing foreign agents who operate in the United States. After considering the available evidence, the office did not pursue charges under those statutes against any of the individuals discussed in Section 4 above, with the exception of FARA, charges against Paul Manafort and Richard Gates based on their activities on behalf of Ukraine. One of the interactions between the Trump campaign and Russian-affiliated individuals, the June 9, 2016 meeting between high-ranking campaign officials and Russians promising derogatory information on Hillary Clinton, implicates an additional body of law campaign finance statutes. Schemes involving the solicitation or receipt of assistance from foreign sources raise difficult statutory and constitutional questions. As explained below, the office evaluated those questions in connection with the June 9th meeting. The rest of the sentence is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. The office ultimately concluded that even if the principal legal questions were resolved favorably to the government, a prosecution would encounter difficulties proving that campaign officials or individuals connected to the campaign willfully violated the law. Finally, although the evidence of contacts between campaign officials and Russia-affiliated individuals may not have been sufficient to establish or sustain criminal charges, several U.S. persons connected to the campaign made false statements, about those contacts and took other steps to obstruct the office's investigation and those of Congress. This office has therefore charged some of those individuals with making false statements and obstructing justice. One, potential coordination, conspiracy, and collusion. As an initial matter, this office evaluated potentially criminal conduct that involved the collective action of multiple individuals not under the rubric of collusion, but through the lens of conspiracy law. In so doing, the office recognized that the word collude appears in the acting attorney general's August 2nd, 2017 memorandum. It has frequently been invoked in public reporting, and it is sometimes referenced in antitrust law. See, for example, Brook Group versus Brown and Williamson Tobacco Corporation. But collusion is not a specific offense or theory of liability found in the U.S. Code, nor is it nor is it a term of art in federal criminal law. To the contrary, even as defined in legal dictionaries, collusion is largely synonymous with conspiracy as that crime is set forth in the general federal conspiracy statute 18 U.S.C. Section 371. See Black's Law Dictionary 321. Collusion is an agreement to defraud another or to do or obtain something forbidden by law. Several other legal definitions here. 
um, an agreement between two or more persons to defraud another by the forms of law or to employ such forms as means of accomplishing some unlawful object. And there's an 1897 definition here, an agreement between two or more persons to defraud a person of his rights by the forms of law or to obtain an object forbidden by law. For that reason, this office's focus in resolving the question of joint criminal liability was on conspiracy as defined in federal law, not the commonly discussed term collusion. The office considered in particular whether contacts between Trump campaign officials and Russia-linked individuals could trigger liability for the crime of conspiracy, either under statutes that have their own conspiracy language, for example, 18 U.S.C. sections 1349 and 1951A, or under the general conspiracy statute 18 U.S.C. section 371. The investigation did not establish that the contacts described in volume one, section four amounted to an agreement to commit any substantive violation of federal criminal law, including foreign influence and campaign finance laws, both of which are discussed further below. The office therefore did not charge any individual associated with the Trump campaign with conspiracy to commit a federal offense arising for Russia contacts, either under a specific statute or under Section 371's offense clause, Offenses Clause. The office also did not charge any campaign official or associate with a conspiracy under Section 371's Defraud Clause. That clause criminalizes participating in an agreement to obstruct a lawful function of the U.S. government or its agencies through deceitful or dishonest means. See Dennis versus United States. Hammerschmidt versus United States. See also United States versus Concord Management and Consulting LLC. The investigation did not establish any agreement among campaign officials or between such officials and Russia linked individuals to interfere with or obstruct a lawful function of a government agency during the campaign or transition period. And as discussed in volume one, section five a, the investigation did not identify evidence that any campaign official or associate knowingly and intentionally participated in the conspiracy to defraud that the office charged, namely the active measures conspiracy described in volume one, section two. Accordingly, the office did not charge any campaign associate or other U.S. person with conspiracy to defraud the United States based on the Russia related contacts described in section four above two potential coordination foreign agent statutes FARA and 18 USC section 951 the office next assessed the potential liability of campaign affiliated individuals under federal statutes regulating actions on behalf of or work done for a foreign government a governing law under 18 USC section 9 51, it is generally illegal to act in the United States as an agent of a foreign government without providing notice to the attorney general. Although the defendant must act on behalf of a foreign government as opposed to other kinds of foreign entities, the acts need not involve espionage. Rather, acts of any type suffice for liability. See United States versus Iran, United States versus Latchin. United States versus Demisi. An agent of a foreign government is an individual who agrees to operate in the United States subject to the direction or control of a foreign government or official. 
18 U.S.C. Section 951D. The crime defined by Section 951 is completely upon knowingly acting in the United States as an unregistered foreign government agent. 18 U.S.C. Section 951A. The statute does not require willfulness and knowledge of the notification requirement is not an element of the defense. United States versus Campa, Duran, Dumisi. The, vor- the Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA, generally makes it illegal to act as an agent of a foreign principal by engaging in certain largely political activities in the United States without registering with the Attorney General. The triggering agency relationship must be with a foreign principal or a person any of whose activities are directly or indirectly supervised, directed, controlled, financed, or subsidized in whole or in major part by a foreign principal. That includes a foreign government or political party and various foreign individuals and entities. A covered relationships exist a covered relationship exists if a person acts as an agent, representative, employee, or servant, or in any other capacity at the order request or under the foreign principal's direction or control. It is sufficient if the person agrees, consents, assumes, or purports to act as, or who is, or holds himself out to be, whether or not pursuant to contractual relationship, an agent of a foreign principal. The triggering activity is that the agent directly or through any other person in the United States engages in political activities for or in the interest of the foreign principal which includes attempts to influence federal offices or the public, act as a public relations counsel, publicity agent, information service employee, or political consultant for or in the interest of such foreign principal. Three, solicits, collects, disperses, or dispenses contributions, loans, money, or other things of value for or in the interest of such foreign principal. Or four, represents the interest of such foreign principal before any federal agency or official. It is a crime to engage in a willful violation of any provision of the act or any regulation there under. It is also a crime willfully to make false statements or omissions of material facts in fire registration statements or supplements. Most violations have most violations have a maximum penalty of five years of imprisonment and a $10,000 fine. B, application. The investigation uncovered extensive evidence that Paul Manafort's and Richard Gates' pre-campaign work for the government of Ukraine violated FARA. Manafort and Gates were charged for that conduct and admitted to it when they pleaded guilty to superseding criminal information in the District of Columbia prosecution. The evidence underlying those charges is not addressed in this report because it was discussed in public court documents and in a separate prosecution memorandum submitted to the acting attorney general before the original indictment in that case. In addition, the investigation produced evidence of fire violations involving Michael Flynn. Those potential violations, however, concerned a country other than Russia i.e. Turkey, and were resolved when Flynn admitted to the underlying facts in the statement of offense that accompanied his guilty plea to a false statements charge. The investigation did not, however, yield evidence sufficient to sustain any charge 
that any individual affiliated with the Trump campaign acted as an agent of a foreign principal within the meaning of FARA or in terms of Section 951 subject to the direction or control of the government of Russia or any official thereof. In particular, the office did not find evidence likely to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that campaign officials such as Paul Manafort, George Papadopoulos, and Carter Page acted as agents of the Russian government or at its discretion, control, or request during the relevant time period. Next sentence is redacted for personal privacy. As a result, the office did not charge redaction for personal privacy. Any other Trump campaign official with violating FARA or Section 951 or attempting or conspiring to do so based on contacts with the Russian government or a Russian principal. Finally, the office investigate what, investigated whether one of the above campaign advisors, George Papadopoulos, acted as an agent of or the direction and control of the government of Israel. While the investigation revealed significant ties between Papadopoulos and Israel and search warrants were obtained in part on that basis, the office ultimately determined that the evidence was not sufficient to obtain and sustain a conviction under FARA or Section 951. Three, campaign finance. Several areas of the office's investigation involved efforts or offers by foreign nationals to provide negative information about candidate Clinton to the Trump campaign or to distribute the information to the public to the anticipated benefit of the campaign. As explained below, the office considered whether two of those efforts in particular, the June 9, 2016 meeting at Trump Tower, next portion is redacted for harm to ongoing matter, constituted prosecutable violations of the campaign finance laws. The office determined that the evidence was not sufficient to charge either incident as a criminal violation. A, overview of governing law. The United States has a compelling interest in limiting the participation of foreign citizens in activities of democratic self-government and in thereby preventing foreign influence over the U.S. political process. That's from an opinion that uh, now Justice Kavanaugh wrote. To that end, federal campaign finance law broadly prohibits foreign nationals for making contributions, donations, expenditures, or other disbursements in connection with federal, state, or local candidate elections and prohibits anyone from soliciting, accepting, or receiving such contributions or donations. As relevant here, foreign nationals may not make and no one may solicit, accept, or receive from them a contribution or donation of money or other thing of value or an express or implied promise to make a contribution or donation in connection with a federal, state, or local election. The term contribution, which is used throughout the campaign finance, finance law, includes any gift, subscription, loan, advance, or deposit of money, or anything of value made by any person for the purpose of influencing any election for federal office. It excludes, among other things, the value of volunteer services. Foreign nationals are also barred from making an expenditure, independent expenditure, or disbursement for an electioneering communication. 
The term expenditure includes any purchase, payment, distribution loan, advance, deposit, or gift of money or anything of value made by any person for the purpose of influencing any election for federal office. It excludes, among other things, news stories and nonpartisan get-out-the-vote activities. An independent expenditure is an expenditure expressly advocating the election or defeat of a clearly identified candidate and made independently of the campaign. An electioneering communication is a broadcast communication that refers to a clearly identified candidate for federal office and is made within specified time periods and targeted at the relevant electorate. The statute defines foreign national by reference to FARA and the Immigration and Nationality Act with minor modification. That definition yields five sometimes overlapping categories of foreign nationals, which includes all of the individuals and entities relevant for present purposes, namely foreign governments and political parties, individuals outside of the U.S. who are not legal permanent residents and certain non-U.S. entities located outside of the U.S. A knowing and willful violation involving an aggregate of $25,000 or more in a calendar year is a felony. A knowing and willful violation involving an aggregate of $2,000 or more in a calendar year, but less than $25,000 is a misdemeanor. B, application to June 9 Trump Tower meeting. The office considered whether to charge Trump campaign officials with crimes in connection with the June 9th meeting described in Volume 1, Section 4A5. The office concluded that in light of the government's substantial burden of proof on issues of intent, knowing and willful, and the difficulty of establishing the value of the offered information, criminal charges would not meet the justice manual standard that the admissible evidence will probably be sufficient to obtain and sustain a conviction. In brief, the key facts are that on June 3rd, 2016, Robert Goldstone emailed Donald Trump Jr. to pass along from Emin and Eris Agalarov an offer from Russia's crown prosecutor to the Trump campaign of official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia and would be very useful to Trump Jr.'s father. The email described this as very high level and sensitive information that is part of Russia and its government support to Mr. Trump helped along by Eris and Emin. Trump Jr. responded, if it's what you say, I love it, especially later in the summer. Trump Jr. and Emin Egalarov had followed conversations and within days scheduled a meeting with Russian representatives that was attended by Trump Jr., Manafort and Kushner. The communications setting up the meeting and the attendance by high-level campaign representatives support an inference that the campaign anticipated receiving derogatory documents and information from official Russian sources that could assist candidate Trump's electoral prospects. This series of events could implicate the federal election law ban on contributions and donate donations by foreign nationals, specifically Goldstone passed along an offer reportedly from a Russian government official to provide official documents and information to the Trump campaign for the purposes of influencing the presidential election. Trump Jr. appears to have accepted that offer and to have arranged a meeting to receive those materials. Documentary evidence in the form of email chains supports the inference that Kushner and Manafort were aware of that purpose and attended the June 9th meeting anticipating the receipt 
of helpful information to the campaign from Russian sources. The offer, the office considered whether this evidence would establish a conspiracy to violate the foreign contributions ban in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 371, the solicitation of an illegal foreign source contribution or the acceptance or receipt of an express or implied promise to make a foreign source contribution, both in violation of 52 U.S.C. Section 30121A1AA2. There are reasonable arguments that the offered information would constitute a thing of value within the meaning of these provision provisions, but the office determined that the government would not be likely to obtain and sustain a conviction for two other reasons. First, the office did not obtain admissible evidence likely to meet the government's burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that these individuals acted willfully, i.e. with general knowledge of the illegality of their conduct. And second, the government would likely encounter difficulty in proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the value of the promised information exceeded the threshold for a criminal violation. One thing of value element. A threshold legal question is whether providing to a campaign documents and information of the type involved here would constitute a prohibited campaign contribution. The foreign contribution ban is not limited to contributions of money. It expressly prohibits a contribution or donation of money or other thing of value. And the term contribution is defined throughout the campaign finance laws to include any gift, subscription, loan, advance, or deposit of money or anything of value. The phrases thing of value and anything of value are broad and inclusive enough to encompass at least some forms of valuable information. Throughout the United States Code, these phrases serve as terms of art that are construed broadly. Uh, One decision, United States versus Nielsen, deals with things of value, includes both tangibles and intangibles. Uh, They cite bribery statutes, theft of government property. For example, the term thing of value encompasses law enforcement reports that would reveal the identity of informants, classified materials, confidential information about a competitive bid, secret grand jury information, and information about a witness's whereabouts. And in the public corruption context, thing of value is defined broadly to include the value which the defendant substantively, sorry, which the defendant subjectively attaches to the items received. Federal Election Commission FEC regulations recognize the value to a campaign of at least some forms of information, stating that the term anything of value includes the provision of any goods or services without charge, such as membership lists and mailing lists. The FEC has concluded that the phrase includes a state-by-state list of activists. Likewise, polling data provided to a campaign constitutes a contribution. And in the specific context of the foreign contributions ban, the FEC has concluded that election materials used in previous Canadian campaigns, including flyers, advertisements, door hangers, trifolds, signs, and other printed materials constitute anything of value, even though the value of these materials may be nominal or difficult to ascertain. These authorities would support the view that candidate-related opposition research given to a campaign for the purpose of influencing an election could constitute a contribution to which the foreign source ban could apply. 
The campaign can, can be assisted not only by the provision of funds, but also by the provision of derogatory information about an opponent. Political campaigns frequently conduct and pay for opposition research. A foreign entity that engaged in such research and provided resulting information to a campaign could exert a greater effect on an election and a greater tendency to ingratiate the donor to the candidate than a gift of money or tangible things of value. At the same time, no judicial decision has treated the voluntary provision of uncompensated opposition research or similar information as a thing of value that could amount to a contribution under campaign finance law. Such an interpretation could have implications beyond the foreign source ban, imposing monetary limits on campaign contributions and raise First Amendment questions. Those questions could be especially difficult where the information consisted simply of the recounting of historically accurate facts. It is uncertain how courts would resolve those issues to willfulness. Even assuming that the promised documents and information that would incriminate Hillary constitute a thing of value under campaign finance law, the government would encounter other challenges in seeking to obtain and sustain a conviction. Most significantly, the government has not obtained admissible evidence that is likely to establish the scienter requirement beyond a reasonable doubt. To prove that a defendant acted knowingly and willfully, the government would have to show that the defendant had general knowledge that his conduct was unlawful. Case law says, noting that a willful violation requires proof of the defendant's knowledge of the law. This standard or knowledge of general unlawfulness, this standard creates an elevated scienter element requiring at the very least that application of the law to the facts in question be fairly clear. When there is substantial doubt concerning whether the law applies to the facts of a particular matter, the offender is more likely to have an intent defense. On the facts here, the government would unlikely be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the June 9th meeting participants had general knowledge that their conduct was unlawful. The investigation had not developed evidence that the participants in the meeting were familiar with the foreign contribution ban or the application of federal law to the relevant factual context. The government does not have strong evidence of surreptitious behavior or efforts at concealment at the time of the June 9th meeting. While the government has evidence of later efforts to prevent disclosure of the nature of the June 9th meeting that could circumstantially provide support for a showing of scienter, that concealment occurred more than a year later involved individuals who did not attend the June 9th meeting and may reflect an intention to avoid political consequences rather than any prior knowledge of illegality. Additionally, in light of the unresolved legal questions about whether giving documents and information of the sort offered here constitutes a campaign contribution, Trump Jr. could mount a factual defense that he did not believe his response to the offer in the June 9 meeting itself violated the law. Given his less direct involvement in arranging, arranging the June 9 meeting, Kushner could likely mount a similar defense. And while Manafort is experienced with political campaigns, the office has not developed evidence showing that he had relevant knowledge of these legal issues. Three, difficulties in valuing promised information. The office would also encounter difficulty providing beyond a reasonable doubt 
that the value of the promise documents and information exceeds the $2,000 threshold for a criminal violation, as well as the $25,000 threshold for felony punishment. The type of evidence commonly used to establish the value of non-monetary contributions, such as pricing, the contribution on a commercial market, or determining the upstream acquisition cost or the cost of distribution, would likely be unavailable or ineffective in this factual setting. Although damaging opposition research is surely valuable to a campaign, it appears that the information ultimately delivered in the meeting was not valuable. And while value in a conspiracy may well be measured by what the participants expected to receive at the time of the agreement, Goldstone's description of the offered material here was quite general. His suggestion of the information's value, i.e. that it would incriminate Hillary and would be very useful to Trump Jr.'s father, was nonspecific and may have been understood as being of uncertain worth or reliability given Goldstone's lack of direct access to the original source. The uncertainty over what would be delivered could be reflected in Trump Jr.'s response. If it's what you say, I love it. Accordingly, taking into account the high burden to establish a culpable mental state in a campaign finance prosecution and the difficulty in establishing the required valuation, the office decided not to pursue criminal campaign finance charges against Trump Jr., or other campaign officials for the events culminating in the June 9 meeting. That's crazy, just because he didn't know he broke the law, but he definitely broke the law. C, application to, this is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. The rest of page 188 is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. All of 189 is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. Two, willfulness. As discussed, to establish a criminal campaign finance violation, the government must prove that that the defendant acted knowingly and willfully. That standard requires proof that the defendant knew generally that his conduct was unlawful. Given the uncertainties noted above, the willfulness requirement would pose a substantial barrier to prosecution. Three, constitutional considerations. Finally, the First Amendment could pose constraints on a prosecution. This rest of this paragraph is redacted for harm to ongoing matter. Four, analysis as to that's redacted for harm to ongoing matter, as well as the rest of or the whole paragraph, the analysis on page 190. And the two following paragraphs are redacted for harm to ongoing matter on 191. Four, false statements and obstruction of the investigation. The office determined that certain individuals associated with the campaign lied to investigators about campaign contacts with Russia and have taken other actions to interfere with the investigation. As explained below, the office therefore charged some U.S. persons connected to the campaign with false statements and obstruction offenses. A. Overview of governing law. False statements. The principal federal statute criminalizing false statements to government investigators is 18 U.S.C. Section 1001. As relevant here, under Section 1001A2, it is a crime to knowingly and willfully make any materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent statement or representation in any matter within the jurisdiction of the executive branch of the government. An FBI investigation is a matter within the executive branch's jurisdiction. The statute also applies to a subset 
of legislative branch actions, administrative matters, and investigations or reviews conducted by a congressional committee or subcommittee. Whether the statement was made to law enforcement or congressional investigators, the government must prove beyond a reasonable doubt the same basic non-jurisdictional elements. The statement was false, fictitious or fraudulent. The defendant knew both that it was false and that it was unlawful to make a false statement and the false statement was material. Um, Case law cited here, listing elements, explaining that the section that the section 1000 jury 1001 jury instruction was modified in light of the Department of Justice's position that the phrase knowingly and willfully in the statute requires the defendant's knowledge that his or her conduct was unlawful in the DC court the government must prove that the statement was actually false a statement that is misleading but literally true does not satisfy section 1001A2 For that false statement to qualify as material, it must have a natural tendency to influence or be capable of influencing a discrete decision or any other function of the agency to which it is addressed. Perjury. Under the federal perjury statutes, it is a crime for a witness testifying under oath before a grand jury to knowingly make any false material declaration. The government must prove four elements beyond a reasonable doubt to obtain a conviction under Section 1623A. The defendant testified under oath before a federal grand jury. The defendant's testimony was false in one or more respects. The false testimony concerned matters that were material to the grand jury investigation, and the false testimony was knowingly given. The general perjury statute, 18 U.S.C. Section 1621, also applies to grand jury testimony and has similar elements, except that it requires that the witness have acted willfully and that the government satisfy strict common law requirements for establishing falsity. Explaining C. Dunn versus United States, explaining the two witness rule and the cooperation that it demands. Obstruction of justice. Three basic elements are common to the obstruction statutes pertinent to this office's charging decisions and obstructive act, some form of nexus between the obstructive act and an official proceeding, and criminal, i.e. corrupt intent. A detailed discussion of those elements and the law governing obstruction of justice more generally is included in volume two of the report. B. Application to certain individuals. First, George Papadopoulos. Investigators approached Papadopoulos for an interview based on his role as a foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign and his suggestion to a foreign government representative that Russia had indicated that it could assist the campaign through the anonymous release of information damaging to candidate Clinton. On January 27th, 2017, Papadopoulos agreed to be interviewed by FBI agents who informed him that the interview was part of the investigation into potential Russian government interference in the 2016 presidential election. During the interview, Papadopoulos lied about the timing, extent, and nature of his communications with Joseph Mifsud, Olga Polinskaya, and Ivan Timofeev. With respect to timing, Papadopoulos acknowledged that he had met Mifsud and that Mifsud told him the Russians had dirt on Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. But Papadopoulos stated multiple times 
that those communications occurred before he joined the Trump campaign and that it was a very strange coincidence to be told of the dirt before he started working for the campaign. This account was false. Papadopoulos met Mifsud for the first time on approximately March 14, 2016, after Papadopoulos had already learned he would be a foreign policy advisor for the campaign. Mifsud showed interest in Papadopoulos only after learning of his role on the campaign. And Mifsud told Papadopoulos about the Russians possessing dirt on candidate Clinton in late April 2016, more than a month after Papadopoulos had joined the campaign and been publicly announced by candidate Trump. Papadopoulos also made false statements in an effort to minimize the extent and importance of his communications with Mifsud. For example, Papadopoulos stated that Mifsud's a nothing, that he thought Mifsud was just a guy talking up connections or something, and that he believed Mifsud was BSing, to be completely honest with you. In fact, however, Papadopoulos understood Mifsud to have substantial connections to high-level Russian government officials and that Mifsud spoke with some of those officials in Moscow before telling Papadopoulos about the dirt. Papadopoulos also engaged in extensive communications over a period of months with with Mifsud about foreign policy issues for the campaign, including efforts to arrange a history-making meeting between the campaign and Russian government officials. In addition, Papadopoulos failed to inform investigators that Mifsud had introduced him to Timothy, the Russian national who Papadopoulos understood to be connected to the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, despite being asked if he had met with Russian nationals or anyone with a Russian accent during the campaign. Papadopoulos also falsely claimed that he met Polinskaya before he joined the campaign and falsely told the FBI that he had no relationship at all with her. He stated that the extent of their communications was her sending emails. Just, hi, how are you? That's it. In truth, however, Papadopoulos met Polinskaya on March 24, 2016, after he had joined the campaign. He believed that she had connections to high-level Russian government officials and could help him arrange a potential foreign policy trip to Russia. During the campaign, he emailed and spoke with her over Skype on numerous occasions about the potential foreign policy trip to Russia. Papadopoulos's false statements in January 2017 impeded the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Most immediately, those statements hindered investigators' ability to effectively question Mifsud when he was interviewed in the lobby of a Washington, D.C. hotel on February 10, 2017. During that interview, Mifsud admitted to knowing Papadopoulos and to having introduced him to Polonskaya and Timothy. But Mifsud denied that he had advanced knowledge that Russia was in possession of emails damaging to candidate Clinton, stating that he and Papadopoulos had discussed cybersecurity and hacking as a larger issue and that Papadopoulos must have misunderstood their conversation. Mifsud also falsely stated that he had not seen Papadopoulos since the meeting at which Mifsud introduced him to Polinskaya, even though emails, text messages, and other information show that Mifsud met with Papadopoulos on at least two other occasions, April 12th and April 26th, 2016. In addition, Mifsud admitted that he had drafted or edited the follow-up message that Polinskaya sent to Papadopoulos following the initial meeting, and that as reflected, 
In the language of that email chain, baby, thank you. Miss Sud may have been involved in a personal relationship with Polinskaya at that time. The false information and omissions in Papadopoulos' January 2017 interview undermined investigators' ability to challenge Mifsud when he made these inaccurate statements. Given the seriousness of the lies and omissions and their effect on the FBI's investigation, the office charged Papadopoulos with making false statements to the FBI in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1001. On October 17th, I'm sorry, on October 7th, 2017, Papadopoulos pleaded guilty to that charge pursuant to a plea agreement. On September 7th, 2018, he was sentenced to 14 days of imprisonment, a $9,500 fine, and 200 hours of community service. Two is redacted for personal privacy, and the next two paragraphs are redacted for a grand jury. Three, Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn agreed to be interviewed by the FBI on January 24th, 2017, four days after he had officially assumed his duties as National Security Advisor to the President. During the interview, Flynn made several false statements pertaining to his communications with the Russian ambassador. First, Flynn made two false statements about his conversations with Russian Ambassador Kislyak in late December 2016, at a time when the United States had imposed sanctions on Russia for interfering with the 2016 presidential election and Russia was considering its response. Flynn told the agents that he did not ask Kislyak to refrain from escalating the situation in response to the United States imposition of sanctions. That statement was false. On December 29th, 2016, Flynn called Kislyak to request Russian restraint. Flynn made the call immediately after speaking to a senior transition team official, Katie McFarlane, about what to communicate to Kislyak. Flynn then spoke with McFarlane again after the Kislyak call to report on the substance of that conversation. Flynn also falsely told the FBI that he did not remember a follow-up conversation in which Kislyak stated that Russia had chosen to moderate its response to the U.S. sanctions as a result of Flynn's request. On December 31st, 2016, Flynn, in fact, had such a conversation with Kislyak, and he again spoke with McFarlane within hours of the call to relay the substance of his conversation with Kislyak. Second, Flynn made false statements about calls he had previously made to representatives of Russia and other countries regarding a resolution submitted by Egypt to the United Nations Security Council on December 21st, 2016. Specifically, Flynn stated that he only asked the country's positions on how they would vote on the resolution and that he did not request that any of the countries take any particular action on the resolution. That statement was false. On December 22nd, 2016, Flynn called Kislyak, informed him of the incoming Trump administration's opposition to the resolution and requested that Russia vote against or delay the resolution. Flynn also falsely stated that Kislyak never described Russia's responses December 22nd request regarding the resolution. Kislyak, in fact, told Flynn in a conversation on December 23rd, 2016, that Russia would not vote against the resolution if it came to a vote. 
Flynn made these false statements to the FBI at a time when he was serving as national security advisor and when the FBI had an open investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election, including the nature of any links between the Trump campaign and Russia. Flynn's false statement and omissions. Let me say that again. Flynn's false statements and omissions impeded and otherwise had a material impact on that ongoing investigation. They also came shortly before Flynn made separate submissions to the Department of Justice pursuant to FARA that also contained materially false statements and omissions. Based on the totality of that conduct, the office decided to charge Flynn with making false statements to the FBI in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1001. A, on December 1st, 2017, and pursuant to a plea agreement, Flynn pleaded guilty to that charge and also admitted his false statements to the department in his FARA filing. Flynn is awaiting sentencing. Four, Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen was the executive vice president and special counsel to the Trump Organization when Trump was president of the Trump Organization. From the fall of 2015 through approximately June 2016, Cohen was involved in a project to build a Trump-branded tower and adjoining development in Moscow. The project was known as Trump Tower Moscow. In 2017, Cohen was called to testify before the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, HPSCI, and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, SSCI both of which were investigating Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election and possible links between Russia and the presidential campaigns. In late August 2017, in advance of his testimony, Cohen caused a two-page statement to be sent to SSCI and HBSCI addressing Trump Tower Moscow. The letter contained three representations relevant here. First, Cohen stated that the Trump Moscow project had ended in January 2016 and that he had briefed candidate Trump on the project only three times before making the unilateral decision to terminate it. Second, Cohen represented that he never agreed to travel to Russia in connection with the project and never considered asking Trump to travel for the project. Third, Cohen stated that he did not recall any Russian government contact about the project, including any response to an email that he had sent to a Russian government email account. Cohen later asked that his two-page statement be incorporated into his testimony transcript before SSCI, and he ultimately gave testimony to SSCI that was consistent with that statement. Each of the foregoing representations in Cohen's two-page statement was false and misleading. Consideration of the project had extended through approximately June 2016 and included more than three progress reports from Cohen to Trump. Cohen had discussed with Felix Sater his own travel to Russia as part of the project, and he had inquired about the possibility of Trump traveling there, both with the candidate himself and with senior campaign official Corey Lewandowski. Cohen did recall that he had received a response to the email that he sent to Russian government spokesman Dmitry Peskov, in particular that he received an email reply and had a follow-up phone conversation with an English-speaking assistant to Peskov in mid-January 2016. Cohen knew the statements in the letter to be false at the time and admitted that he had made them in an effort to minimize the links between the project and Trump, who by this time 
was president, and two, to give the false impression that the project had ended before the first vote in the Republican Party primary process in the hopes of limiting the ongoing Russia investigations. Given the nature of the false statements and the fact that he repeated them during his initial interview with the office, we charged Cohen with violating Section 1001. On November 29, 2018, Cohen pleaded guilty pursuant to a plea agreement to a single count information charging him with making false statements in a matter within the jurisdiction of the legislative branch in violation of 18 U.S.C. sections 1001A2 and C. The case was transferred to the district judge presiding over the separate prosecution of Cohen pursued by the Southern District of New York. On December 7, 2018, this office submitted a letter to that judge recommending that Cohen's cooperation with our investigation be taken into account in sentencing Cohen on both the false statements charge and the offenses in the Southern District prosecution. On December 12th, 2018, the judge sentenced Cohen to, to two months of imprisonment on the false statements count to run concurrently with a 36-month sentence imposed on the other counts. Five, this is redacted for harm to ongoing matter, as well as the subsequent four paragraphs, um, three of them on 197. Six, Jeff Sessions. As set forth in Volume 1, Section 4A6, the investigation established that while a U.S. senator and a Trump campaign advisor, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions interacted with Russian Ambassador Kislyak during the week of the Republican National Convention in July 2016, and again at a meeting in Sessions Senate office in September 2016, the investigation also established that Sessions and Kislyak both attended a reception held before candidate Trump's foreign policy speech at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. in April 2016, and that it is possible that they met briefly at that reception. The office considered whether, in light of these interactions, Sessions committed perjury before or made false statements to Congress in connection with his confirmation as attorney general. In January 2017, testimony during his confirmation hearing, Sessions stated in response to a question about Trump campaign communications with the Russian government that he had been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign and I didn't have, did not have communications with the Russians. In written responses submitted on January 17th, 2017, Sessions answered no to a question asking whether he had been in contact with anyone connected to any part of the Russian government about the 2016 election, either before or after election day. And in a March 2017 supplement to his testimony, Sessions identified two of the campaign period contacts with Ambassador Kislyak noted above which had been reported in the media following the January 2017 confirmation hearing. Sessions stated in the supplemental response that he did not recall any discussions with the Russian ambassador or any other representatives of the Russian government regarding the political campaign on these occasions or any other occasion. Although the investigation established that Sessions interacted with Kislyak on the occasions described above, and that Kislyak mentioned the presidential campaign on at least one occasion, the evidence is not sufficient to prove that Sessions gave knowingly false answers to Russia-related questions in light of the wording and context of those questions. With respect to Sessions' statements that he did not recall any discussion 
discussions with the Russian ambassador regarding the political campaign, and he had not been in contact with any Russian official about the 2016 election, the evidence concerning the nature of Sessions' interactions with Kislyak makes it plausible that Sessions did not recall discussing the campaign with Kislyak at the time of his statements. Similarly, while Sessions stated in his January 2017 oral testimony that he did not have communications with Russians, he did so in response to a question that had linked such communications to an alleged continuing exchange of information between the Trump campaign and Russian government intermediaries. Sessions later explained to the Senate and to the office that he understood the question as narrowly calling for disclosures of interactions with Russians that involved the exchange of campaign information and as distinguished from more routine contacts with Russian nationals. Given the context in which the question was asked, that understanding is plausible. Accordingly, the office concluded that the evidence was insufficient to prove that Sessions was willfully untruthful in his answers and thus insufficient to obtain or sustain a conviction for perjury or false statements. Consistent with the principles of federal prosecution, the office therefore determined not to pursue charges against Sessions and informed his counsel of that decision in March 2018. Six, seven, others interviewed during the investigation. The office considered whether during the course of the investigation, other Individuals interviewed either omitted material information or provided information determined to be false. Applying the principles of federal prosecution, the office did not seek criminal charges against any individuals other than those listed above. In some instances, that decision was due to evidentiary hurdles to proving falsity. In others, the office determined that the witness ultimately provided truthful information and that considerations of culpability deterrence, and resource preservation weighed against prosecution. The rest of this page, the final of volume one, is redacted for personal privacy and grand jury. We're all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors, all we know is to fight. Pray, they see God in everything I write here. Yeah.